Hello, and welcome to the MyCare Champion Cast. I'm your host, Brian Peters, CEO of the Michigan Health and Hospital Association. Today, I'm honored to have MHA Board Chair Shannon Strebick join me here in our studio. Shannon was recently appointed President and CEO of Trinity Health Michigan, and she's also the past chair of our MHA Keystone Center Board of Directors, as well as past chair of the MHA's Legislative Policy Panel. So she has been so engaged and so helpful to the Michigan Health and Hospital Association, and we greatly appreciate her being with us today. During Shannon's 21-year tenure with Trinity Health Michigan, she's consistently excelled in positions of growing scope and responsibility from hospital operations lead to president of Trinity Health Oakland and Trinity Health Livonia Hospitals to her most recent statewide role as president and CEO. Shannon has led operational performance at Trinity to benchmark levels, launched key initiatives, and transformed the health system's service line models to make it easier for patients to access care. She's also a member of the Midwest chapter of the American College of Healthcare Executives, an involved member of her community, a wife, and a mother of four. For today's episode, Shannon and I are going to discuss our MHA board priorities, including what workforce challenges are top of mind, and what efforts are underway at Trinity Health in the behavioral health space. With all that said, Shannon, thank you so much for being here today, and congratulations on your well-deserved new role at Trinity Health. Brian, thank you for that incredibly warm welcome, and uh, it's my pleasure to spend time just kind of chatting with you today about everything that's happening in our world. Well, I've certainly enjoyed working with you for many years, but particularly since July 1st when you assumed the position of chair of the MHA board, and you're just doing a tremendous job leading our organization, and I know that's uh, a viewpoint that's shared by all of our board members and certainly by the MHA staff as well. So to jump into our discussion today, uh, clearly it's safe to say we've hit the ground running in this Mm -hmm. new MHA program year. Lots happened already uh, just since July 1st, but what are you looking forward to the most in your role as a board chair and what do you hope that we can accomplish uh, this program year? You know, I think, um, gosh, I, I feel like we're still as an industry in this COVID hangover, you know, or or a little bit of still PTSD from COVID. But one of the the really good things I think that came out of the pandemic is it pulled our membership even closer together across the state. And the alignment of of priorities and really focusing on our mission um, to improve healthcare access for all across the state of Michigan. I think the board comes back to that time and again as a theme. We just completed our, our strategic planning retreat in August and, you know, really kind of solidified our continued focus on our four pillars, financial viability, of course, and some work that we're hoping is going to come to fruition related to Medicaid rates, uh, workforce restoration and innovation. And, um, you know, I, I think just kind of the shared lear- learning and problem solving together of our health systems across the state. We are so lucky to have member unity within the MHA. And the more that I have the opportunity to work across the association, uh, it's tremendous. You know, the the shared learning opportunities, the sharing of best practices, the ability to problem solve together. And then, of course, behavioral health and health equity. Behavioral health is a topic that is a high priority for me personally. I think we we have so much to do within our communities to, to just make access easier to help to remove uh, the stigma that those that suffer from behavioral health 
challenges still face today. I think the pandemic exacerbated a lot of that for many. Uh, and I still think today, unfortunately, access is really, really hard. And we have people that land in hospitals that probably could have avoided that if we had the right interventions at the right time and place in their their care journey. So that's something that I really hope that we can make some forward progress on together. And then health equity, you know, during the discussion at the board retreat, we talked about health equity really being a fundamental component of every pillar and of everything that we do. But because we still have so much work to do as it relates to equal access um, and, you know, kind of the, the challenges that people face based on perhaps the zip code they live in, perhaps the insurance they carry, we need to continue to lift that up as a priority in and of itself. So I think when I think about the program year ahead, we've got so many high priorities. Um, you know, the things that are immediately in front of us are kind of still in that category of financial viability and, and workforce restoration. But I don't want to lose track of these other really important things as well. Well, as you said, we have a very robust agenda, and I, I want to reflect on something you said, uh, which I think is uh, is really important, and that is reflecting on the experience of the COVID-19 pandemic. Obviously, it was in incredibly uh, challenging for all of us to go through those uh, very difficult days, but uh, at the end of that experience, I do think it created an even stronger association, and you saw it in our recent board retreat where... Uh, CEOs of hospitals and health systems, many of which are competing in the marketplace every day, really have developed a culture of collaboration when it comes to all of these important issues that you just mentioned, where we can come together with that shared learning and, and shared advocacy uh, to the extent that many of these issues involve the public policy arena at the state and federal level. And it's why I say our association has never been stronger. I think we, we came through those challenging days uh, in a good place able to meet the needs of our patients and communities. So thank you again for sharing just some of those preliminary thoughts. There's a lot to unpack there, mm -hmm. right, Shannon? A lot to unpack. I know. But let's do that. Let's yep. dive into a couple of these issues. And I think our listeners would really be interested in knowing a bit more about your perspective at Trinity Health as a system that is one of the largest in the state of Michigan that uh, employs you know, over 6,000 physicians and other clinicians. What are your thoughts on the workforce challenge that uh, you confront right now? What are you doing in terms of recruitment and retention and making sure that those frontline caregivers in particular have the support they need? So this is continues to be, you know, people ask what keeps you up at night? That's a hard question to answer sometimes. But the the workforce challenges that we're facing within Trinity, that we're facing within our industry are, are top of that list. Um, and we're seeing improvement within Trinity. You know, we're seeing some of the, the um, investments that we're making beginning to pay off, but we still have a lot of work to do. There are you know, continue to be challenges with just pipeline of nurses applying for positions within Trinity Health Michigan. As I understand it, it's an issue across the state of Michigan, again, across the nation. And, you know, when we look at who's entering the workforce, it just seems like the numbers that are coming in to apply are not growing at the pace that we need them to. There's data that was published that shows the relationship between baby boomers in that generation retiring and who's kind of coming up the ranks and replacing them. And I think the, the and I know that the pandemic accelerated a lot of that change. And so while we're losing 
you know, kind of workforce as measured by bodies, we're also watching workforce as measured by time and experience and tenure that we're losing at the same time. And that's just as concerning. So we're, we're doing what many are doing. You know, we're, we're talking to our teams on a very regular basis and very focused on retention. Trinity was really fortunate in investing in an internal staffing agency that we call First Choice. So we've got our own pool that we're able to pull from and, and fill staffing gaps to the extent that we can do that with, with our own colleagues. Uh, we're investing in academic partnerships to try to attract both our existing colleagues to, to consider going back to school to get additional training and also as a way to attract other members of our community to pursue an academic program with one of our partners and do their clinical training with us and hopefully have a successful career with us. Um, and because we know that despite all of those efforts, we continue to have gaps, we've, we've also started to leverage technology. You've heard me talk about our virtually connected care model. I am incredibly proud of what our nursing team has created. That, that care model has been designed by those that do the work. Uh, and it's been refined by those that do the work. And if you come and, and watch it today, and I think you've been to see it at least once, it is the care is outstanding. We've got uh, a pairing of an experienced nurse behind a camera sitting on the hospital campus, but using technology to support a team that's working at the bedside. And we're finding that our more experienced nurses are staying to move into those roles. It's less physically demanding. It allows caregivers to still practice at caregivers. They're just using technology to, you know, to do their, their job as an enabler. And um, I think we're going to continue to see that kind of care grow. It's, it's been incredibly positive for us. And as we roll it out to other patient care units across both our Oakland Hospital and other hospitals within the state of Michigan, we see improvement in some safety outcomes that we track on a regular basis improvement in staff satisfaction and retention and just feelings, I think, of hope, you know, that we've got a solution that that will help. It's not the only solution, but it's one that we think, you know, will be pretty impactful. And in addition to nurse shortages, we've got imaging technology shortages and surgery tech. So we've got shortages kind of across the gamut. I don't think we talk enough about the other disciplines where we're challenged. And that's, again, where academic partnerships can be really powerful. You can start off in a tech position and then continue your education and continue to get additional training. And I think that latter is important for young people to understand, too. So I could go on on this topic forever, but this continues to be, you know, we've got to work hard, I think, to try to restore some of the, the joy to being a caregiver. And I think in order to do that, we really need to connect with our staffs again and again and again and understand what's working, what's not working, what can we do now, what do we need to work towards together in the longer term uh, to make our workforce and our, our places of employment places that people frankly want to be. Well, that's a great insight. And uh, as you mentioned, you were so gracious to host me and some of our other uh, MHA staff members for a visit there at Trinity Oakland. Uh, incredibly impressive to see the dedication and the skill of your team, Shannon. I want to reflect on a couple of things that um, that stood out from that visit. Uh, one of them was actually an issue that I know the MHA board and our staff is focused around, and that is the rise in violence in the healthcare workplace and, and really trying to create a safer environment for our, our frontline caregivers as we see more and more uh, patients, family members, and others who are acting inappropriately in the healthcare setting. We've called on the public many times over the last couple of years uh, to really show some 
grace and some patience with our our staff who are trying to do their best every day, right? And yep. can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing within Trinity Health and and maybe how we can improve there? Yeah, it's, you know, this continues to to be an issue, particularly in our hospitals, but you know, even in some of our outpatient locations where the concern is is equal and some of our outpatient offices don't necessarily have the same exact level of resource, you know, the same number of people working in those centers. So sometimes you 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 run the risk of having an even greater concern. I personally, you know, we've we've all got a story related to violence in healthcare. And I remember a colleague at one of our hospitals being injured at work by a patient that she was trying to help redirect and the impact that that had on her and just kind of learning and listening to, to what that experience was like for her and, and her colleagues that were around her. And it, it's a story that you could probably replace the name and the environment and replicate it, unfortunately. Uh, one of the things that we did in response to that, we brought a training program in that's called HARP. Uh, it stands for Hospital Assault Response Prevention. And it teaches staff how to recognize very early signs that a patient's going to escalate so that they can perhaps get help, redirect in a different way, et cetera. But it's, it's, not, it's not the only answer. And unfortunately, we still see and hear stories of staff getting really seriously injured just trying to do their job. You know, as I've talked with people that work in other industries, I think we're starting to see some of this violence peak in other industries as well. I've heard about similar uh, incidents on manufacturing plant floors, and I had not heard of that previous to having a discussion with somebody that works in the automotive industry. But all of that being said, staff that work in healthcare, you know, we we provide the most personal of human services. This this work really is about, you know, the the mission and vision of Trinity Health speak to healing body, body, mind, and spirit. And that's that's what our caregivers do every day. And for anybody that's doing that kind of work to fear for their personal safety based on an interaction with another human that they're just trying to take care of is completely unacceptable. Um, and that's where I think both training staff on prevention and how to keep themselves safe, but also continuing to address with the public, you know, None of us are okay with this. None of us want to walk into hospitals and be cared for by people that are, you know, concerned for their own basic safety just in trying to do do their job. These are friends and neighbors that work in their community that are taking care of, of one another. And I, I really urge us to continue to draw attention to this because, um, you know, I, I think we can continue to train and we can continue to work our hardest to keep people safe, but I think everybody plays a role. You know, all members of our community have to have to be involved in, in solutions and in really being committed to change in this space. Well, that's well said. And as you know, uh, the MHA has been engaged in yep. the advocacy realm at both the state and federal level, uh, seeking new uh, penalties against those who commit acts of violence uh, in the healthcare workplace. I mean, if you... Uh, attack a flight attendant on a commercial airline flight, that's a federal offense. That's a felony. And we think our nurses and other frontline caregivers ought to have those same protections. And you've been great in leading uh, that advocacy for the MHA. So we appreciate that. The second thing that really stood out, Shannon, from our our visit with you uh, is something I want to use as a a bit of a segue here. Mm -hmm. And that is, you mentioned the virtual care model. And if you think about 
the evolution of healthcare delivery uh, in the United States, we've had this care model uh, for many, many years. But if you look at emerging technologies that are coming into play and you look at changes in uh, the uh, American populace overall, I mean, we have an aging population. It's shifting uh, demographically and geographically. Again, artificial intelligence coming to play. All of these these uh, sea changes, if you will, uh, to expect that our care delivery model would not evolve over time is kind of crazy mm-hmm. uh, on its face. Mm-hmm. And to see what you're doing at Trinity there is really neat. I think it's the future. It's one example of how we can evolve. But here's where the segue comes in. As we speak, we're fighting a battle here in Lansing against mandatory nurse-to-patient staffing ratios, a one-size-fits-all cookie-cutter approach that, frankly, would kill innovation. It would lock in a delivery model uh, that uh, needs to evolve, quite frankly. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the nurse-to-patient staffing ratio mandate and, and perhaps a bit about why, from Trinity's perspective, you see that that sort of a mandate, which sounds good on its face, would actually create access challenges for the patients you serve? So, you know, at face value, I guess, gosh, we could talk about this all afternoon, couldn't we? But if that legislation were passed, the number of beds that we'd have to close within Trinity Health Hospitals is significant. Um, We already have beds offline because we can't staff the number of beds that were licensed for in a couple of our facilities. So we had to make really hard decisions to close inpatient um, beds in a couple of our hospitals. And uh, those decisions are really, really challenging to make. But, you know, our chief nursing officers and our nursing leaders and our nurses that work at the bedside know better than me, better than you, better than anybody, what's necessary to staff a unit appropriately and safely. And when your nursing leaders are coming to you and saying, we just, we can't, we cannot continue to do this, that decision is made. And so that's what we've had to do. And as a result, we see wait times in ERs that are longer. And the the thing that I worry the most about, the immediate impact of this would be that tenfold. We would see beds close in many of our hospitals across the state. I can't remember the data off the top of my head, but I think the math that the MHA has done suggests that perhaps five to six of our largest hospitals would have to close because the pipeline of staff that we would need to bring in, they simply don't don't exist. They are not out there. Um, So there's, you know, there's that angle, kind of the basic access challenges. And we know Hospitals within communities are important. It's it's a community resource. Uh, these are large employers for our communities, and um, our communities really depend on the service that's provided close to home. And we are lucky within Michigan that we've got, for the most part, fairly good ac- access across most of the state. I think when we get into the rural areas of the state, the challenges are different. Then, I guess, you know, as I talk and learn from my nursing colleagues and nursing leaders, the one of the fundamental roles that a nurse plays is in discerning what the needs of the patients that they're caring for need. And those needs can change on an hourly basis, on a shift basis, on a daily basis. And there's a lot of work and clinical coordination that goes into the work 
of, of caring for patients. And so applying kind of this one-size-fits-all approach, it just simply does not work. To your point about technology, technology can be a tremendous enabler to take some of the, the documentation burden off the bedside caregiver so that they can be more focused on the care of the patient. There are times where a patient's going through, you know, a particular clinical scenario and requires more intensive care. And our staff shift and adapt on a regular basis throughout the course of a day. There are formal and informal ways that this is done. This is the work of our clinical teams. And to apply this standard to that environment, it's just not, not the right solution, not the appropriate solution. You know, it really resonated with me, Shannon, when, when you and I spoke, this was, um, you know, many uh, months ago, about the fact that your nurse leaders there at Trinity are looking at data. They're looking at mm -hmm. metrics, not just on a daily basis, but multiple times yeah. throughout the day. And, you know, things could look a lot different on a Saturday night versus, you know, Wednesday afternoon in this unit versus that unit, that hospital to that hospital, based on the the acuity level of the patients you happen to be serving that day, Who's the training the of your, yep. your nurses and other members of the care team, the technology you may or may not have in place, just all of these variables. Mm -hmm. And to think that we would turn over that sort of decision-making to lawmakers here in Lansing, uh, as opposed to relying on that expertise at the bedside, yep. is just a crazy idea in, in our is. view. And that's why we're fighting so yep, hard against it. Yeah. But thank you for that insight. And you know, what you just described certainly applies to these very large institutions in Southeast Michigan, where, where you uh, hosted us uh, just recently. But you and I were just in the Upper Peninsula together mm -hmm. a few uh, days ago visiting with all of our UP hospital leaders. And boy, we got an earful. It was consistent, everything you just said. I mean, yeah. it's the same impact in rural communities in the UP. Yep, yeah, and it's it was interesting to learn from that group because we talk about how proud we are of the collaborative spirit that we have, you know, across Michigan. And I think in the Upper Peninsula, that's even more pronounced because of the distance and the environment that those, those leaders serve in. And it was a resounding, this is not the right solution from every person sitting around that table relative to mandated staffing ratios. Um, and that directionally, it would not be helpful. In fact, quite the opposite. So we are hearing that from every environment across the state, really. Well, the bottom line is um, this is very harmful legislation. The MHA is is opposed, and we're doing everything we can to tell our story. But the broader story here really relates to the future of our workforce. Yep. And I think we have a great story to tell in terms of the efforts of Trinity Health, the rest of our members, and certainly the association uh, on a number of different uh, discrete activities and efforts, whether that's funding the $300 million that we secured successfully in the last year uh, to support our frontline caregivers in terms of recruitment and retention. Um, there's just a long list of things we're mm -hmm. doing proactively to support our workforce, uh, not just opposing this bad Absolutely. and harmful legislation. So let's shift gears a little bit, Shannon, uh, to behavioral health, mm -hmm. one of our other strategic pillars for the program year. Uh, for our listeners, I have to tell you, Shannon uh, gave a tremendous presentation at the MHA annual meeting back in June as she was being installed as our new chair. And it really focused on her passion for behavioral health. 
And that's what we want to talk about a bit now. Also at the annual meeting, I want to mention that uh, we were very proud to honor a Trinity Health Livonia Hospital as one of our 2023 MHA Ludwig Award winners, which uplifts impactful community benefit programming that our member hospitals and health systems uh, are leading. So Shannon, can you take uh, just a moment to tell our listeners about the work of the Western Wayne Suicide Prevention Coalition, which was the winner of this uh, prestigious award? Absolutely. So this coalition is made up of seven different school districts in Western Wayne County, Trinity Health Livonia, our hospital there in the Livonia community, and also some some different mental health provider organizations that serve that area of Wayne County. Uh, this group is convened by an organization called GrowthWorks and is really focused on uh, suicide prevention and bringing mental health resources forward and making them available, particularly to young peoples within our community. So, so this coalition has facilitated the training of 20,000 community members, which is just outstanding. And this includes teens, families, uh, school staffs, and different members of the community to really advocate for changing policy and supporting suicide prevention. And I think the more work that's done in this space, whether focused on prevention, whether helping uh, youth that have suffered from significant depression to return back to school and community, this work is so critically important to the people that we serve. So it was, I mean, it was just outstanding for the team to be honored and recognized. I just learned that other school districts across the state are learning about this and want to get involved. And it looks like that this may be replicated in other communities, which is, which is exactly what we'd love to see happen. Well, that's terrific. And congratulations again on that recognition. So stepping back, um, can you share share your thoughts about the behavioral health challenge, broadly speaking, and what you're seeing at Trinity? What needs to be done to improve access to care? Well, I, you know, I first started becoming concerned about this when I was observing just the large number of patients that were waiting in our emergency departments for access to behavioral medicine services. And if you've been inside of an ER, you know of all places, that's really not the right place for somebody that's either in a mental health crisis or suffering from, from some type of a mental, uh, mental health illness or struggle to be. It's not where, where the best resources are available to help. And so, you know, as, as the team and I and many of us just started kind of talking about what in the world is happening here, we've got a system that, that makes access difficult. So, you know, some of the things that could help, I guess, is remedies. One is uh, the collaborative care model. We have this in place within several of our, our medical group practices, our IHA medical group. And this actually embeds mental health professionals inside of primary care offices. So it makes access very easy, kind of eliminates some of the stigma that's associated with seeking mental health services and allows patients to get help early rather than waiting until problems continue to kind of rise and mount and just get harder and harder to navigate. Um, we also, you know, we've got tremendous resources within our communities, but as I've helped patients to navigate, it's become very clear that all of these services are not necessarily connected, and the burden is often placed on the patient to figure out where to go next or to make phone calls and wait until a Monday to do an intake because it's the next available appointment to do this. And um, I was just talking with a family the other day about you know, the navigation support that we give to cancer patients typically is outstanding. If you are 
if you receive a cancer diagnosis within one of our health systems, I, I bet that there are navigators that help you to figure out where you go next. And within mental health, I, I don't necessarily believe that that's the experience of our patients. So you've got patients that are incredibly vulnerable, um, you know, struggling to kind of figure out what to do next and often left to try to figure it out on their own. And patients fall through the cracks and they end up back in ER seeking care because there are just gaps in, in where to go next and gaps in just basic care continuity. So, you know, I think some of the answer are things like deploying the collaborative care model more broadly. I was delighted to see funding um, become available for community health workers because I think they can be a tremendous asset, particularly in communities that struggle with, with just access and how to navigate seeking care within their community. I think we need much stronger outpatient access for members of our community. It's really hard to find a psychiatrist office to do medication management that also offers comprehensive therapy services. You often have to go to multiple places. And I, I just think there's some very basic things that if we work on them together, we can improve the experience for these patients. We should not have the number of people seeking care in hospitals for mental health challenges and concerns that we do today. There, there are there are so many tremendous resources that are available, and I think a lot of this comes back to navigation support for our communities. Well, I think that's a great point, and I, my understanding is that uh, our members have mm -hmm. an opportunity, if public policy would support that opportunity, to really play a lead role in that navigation yes. process, right? And I, I think the other aspect of this, and you alluded to it, it's part of that workforce uh, dilemma where the numbers uh, aren't adding up, that the people leaving the field in the behavioral health realm, uh, that number is greater than the number who are coming up through the pipeline to replace them, mm -hmm. right? And so we, we continue to have that challenge as well. And so looking at the higher education community, and even before that, quite frankly, to really help spotlight healthcare and behavioral health in particular as a career path for our young yes. people. And, you know, we're doing that, as, as you're well aware, with our uh, Michigan Hospital Careers campaign mm -hmm. and the website that we've established there. But, boy, a lot of work to be done. Yep. No yep. question about it. What else can you tell us about uh, behavioral health in terms of um, things that you see on the horizon that could be a difference maker? Are there new technologies? For example, telehealth. Is telehealth being deployed within Trinity uh, to meet the needs of behavioral health patients? You know, we've leveraged telehealth um, as as one route of access for patients that struggle with getting to an appointment but still can benefit from a virtual connection. And I, I think, you know, kind of back to the pandemic and what did the pandemic result in that was positive. Telehealth for behavioral medicine was an avenue that had been used, and I think we just saw much wider adoption during the pandemic because it's a specialty that, you know, is very amenable to camera, you know, as long as you have, you have a, a camera and audio, a, a provider can conduct a pretty thorough visit using virtual medicine, you know, virtual technology as an enabler. And we do leverage that within Trinity. We've got partnerships with some of our, our uh, hospitals within Michigan that care for kids and adolescents that links up that population using virtual technology as well. So that's something that I think we'll continue to see grow. 
I think there are probably other technology enablers that would make this even better and easier and faster. Um, some of the end of the public health emergency took away the ability of our community mental health agencies to leverage technology to the extent that they were doing during the public health emergency, and that's concerning. You know, there, there's no reason that an intake for a community mental health provider shouldn't be done virtually, and the end of a public health emergency shouldn't cut off that form of access. So I want to make sure that we're paying really close attention to those types of issues and just kind of raising our hand and saying, why? Why would we take steps in the wrong direction when we've seen that technology can be a tremendous enabler, particularly for this population of patients where, you know, kind of a video feed and the, ab the ability to communicate with one another really helps with access in a way that's tremendous. And to your point about provider shortages, as we look out on the horizon, I believe this is going to continue to be a necessity, particularly in behavioral medicine, because needs are going to continue to rise. And we've just got we've got a pipeline problem with folks that are pursuing that career path as their their clinical specialty of choice. Right. I mean, yeah. one example of that uh, we heard in the UP that there is to this day just one pediatric yep. psychiatrist uh, serving the entire Upper Peninsula. Yeah. Just as one example of, yeah. of this uh, issue that we're we're describing. Yeah, it is highly concerning. So let's shift gears again and talk about one of the other strategic pillars uh, that the board has embraced. And Shannon, when, when we talk about health equity, I know you were on the MHA board a couple of years back when we embraced a, uh, a unified position calling on every hospital in the state, every health system in the state to sign on to a pledge to address both racism but also implicit bias that may exist in the Michigan healthcare ecosystem. And we're committing to do our part. We've had health equity organization assessments that have been promoted through the MHA Keystone Center that the majority, and in fact, uh, a strong majority of our hospitals and health systems have already completed. And now we're, we're moving to that what next phase? How can we help folks identify the, the weak points and, and do more in terms of health equity? But can you talk just a bit about your perspective on health equity and perhaps how Trinity Health views uh, this important issue? So Trinity Health has taken a very firm stance on the issue of equity and racism in healthcare, has declared that racism is a public health crisis and really has set as um, I don't even want to call this a goal because I think it's even bigger than that, but is very intent on eliminating racism and promoting diversity as a part of our strategic action plan. Um, there's, you know, that kind of started with, with training and conversation and education. And we've had our team of, of leaders all the way down to the frontline and now our frontline caregivers that have gone through a very robust training experience across Trinity that, you know, talks about implicit bias and what it means and talks about differences in health outcomes based on the zip code that a patient lives in and what are we doing about that. So I think a lot of this begins with having intentional conversation and really putting a stake in the ground around our commitment to taking care of all people, regardless of, of where they live, what their background is, et cetera. Um, I also think our community health needs assessment kind of peel back the curtain on what's really happening inside of our communities. And I see our hospitals across the Trinity Health System, and again, I have to imagine this is true for my colleagues as well, 
um, those those community health needs assessments have gone from being something that that organizations are required to do every three years to really being very informative you know, kind of defining how do we set up specific interventions to help specific populations of patients? What are we doing to get to know the the top 200 patients that seem to come into our emergency departments for repeat care? What are we doing to intervene with every one of those people? Are we understanding what their social needs are? Are we helping to identify a primary care physician that they can do some follow-up with? But I, I think really that commitment to understanding the why behind access and health outcomes and intentionally designing interventions um, that are aimed toward improvement. We named a chief health equity officer within Trinity this past fiscal year. Her name is Dr. Sharon O'Leary. She has outstanding training both in quality and also has, has obtained additional training in health equity. And we've even started with, with taking a look, and we did this with the Keystone Center. How accurate are we at collecting data when we register patients? Are we doing an adequate job of making patients comfortable enough to reveal both their race and their ethnicity, but their SOGI data as well? Because all of these things are important as, as it relates to how we interact with patients and how we design care that's very, very personalized. She's actually spearheading a project that we're all participating in that's that's really studying patients that come back to ERs within seven days of discharge to understand why and understand what we need to do differently to help those patients to not continue to seek care in our emergency departments. And I think that's a lot of this health equity work. You know, it's it's one thing to say that you're committed, but really partnering with your communities to understand the access challenges, the access to, to food challenges, the impact of loneliness, and designing programs with members of your community, because hospitals can't do this all by ourselves, to improve those conditions. That's where I think we're going to really start to get some traction. Well, that's fantastic. And when you look at the health equity uh, challenge that is before us and that we're all committed to addressing uh, there is this uh, very close interplay with the social determinants yes. of health and really the uh, the priority issues of food insecurity, transportation, uh, the, these really come to play in a, in a major way. We're right now as an association uh, once again committed as a high-level sponsor and leader of the Michigan Harvest Gathering to help collect food. Uh, for those who are in need. That need, uh, that food insecurity, as we know, is higher today than it's ever been coming out of the pandemic. Uh, so uh, really, really important work. Can you talk a bit about the transportation issue? Mm -hmm. Because one of the things we, we continue to hear from our members is the fact that in many cases, we have patients who are in the hospital beyond uh, their typical uh, discharge date because, frankly, you have no way to transport them to another site of care. Maybe that's a skilled nursing facility. Maybe that's to home. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's some other setting. But what are you experiencing now at Trinity? So, you know, particularly in, in communities um, that tend to be a bit more urban, Pontiac, you know, as one, the, the issue of transportation, that has been an issue for as long as I can remember. So we've invested in community partnerships, things like Freedom Road in the Pontiac community that helps provide transportation to members of the Pontiac community so that that's at least one barrier that we can help to eliminate. Uh, we, we contract with providers like Lyft. We contract with local uh, taxi providers to help 
you know, fund transportation so that at least that's that's one concern, at least as it relates to that patient's, you know, current stay that we can help to eliminate. Um, and, you know, transportation feels like it, it continues to show up on a list along with things like food insecurity and social isolation. And I think all of these things kind of start to get linked together. Using Pontiac again as an example, Pontiac sits in Oakland County, which I think is still either the the wealthiest or one of the wealthiest counties in the state of Michigan. However, the city of Pontiac is a food desert, which, you know, means that access to fresh fruits and vegetables is really, really hard. So when it's not available in your community and you don't have transportation, that need gets even more exacerbated. So we've also designed programs like our farm program that I know that that you've seen. We've got a farm at both Ann Arbor and, and also at our Pontiac Hospital. And we we make farm shares accessible for folks that use WIC and SNAP. So you can use you can apply that benefit to, to you know get access to local produce. We give produce boxes away within our, our healthcare clinics on a very, very regular basis. We just opened up a food pantry inside of our, our Pontiac facilities farm so that anybody can come in at any time and take whatever they need, no questions asked. So those are some of the smaller things that we're doing while we also you know, try to, to allocate some of our community benefit budget on an annual basis to filling that transportation gap. I think that's gonna continue to be an issue. Public transportation options across Michigan can be really challenging. It, it's just the way that, you know, I, I think we're, especially Southeast Michigan, we're an automotive town. So public transportation has kind of taken a back seat. And that's just been sort of the way that our, our cities have developed over time. But, you know, for us to fund some of those public transportation programs continues to be a high priority for us. Absolutely. Well, on the food insecurity issue, I really want to uh, give a shout out to you and uh, our friend Rob Casalou, mm -hmm. former MHA board chair uh, in his own right. Uh, you too have been uh, real pioneers uh, on that food insecurity issue with the creation of the farm uh, down in Ann Arbor um, many years ago and yep. uh, earning national recognition for that work. It really showed what role hospitals and health systems can play in, in addressing food insecurity in a very innovative way. Yep. So again, congratulations on that work. So Shannon, one thing that we haven't talked about yet, and it's one of our strategic pillars as it was a year ago, it's difficult to do any of the work we've been talking about today if you don't have financial viability, mm -hmm. if you don't have the resources to, uh, to do all of these things. And so I think about um, the fact that our members are somewhat unique because while it's true that other uh, segments of the uh, the Michigan economy, uh, other business uh, organizations in our state are certainly hit with increased cost of labor and certainly dealing with the increased uh, supply chain cost, no question about it. What's different is their ability to pass those costs on and recoup them from the consumer is very different from ours because Medicare and Medicaid tell us what they will pay. We are price takers when it comes to that very yep. a significant portion of our business. The private insurance companies are not lining up to pay us more based on these increased labor and supply chain costs. So we're really finding ourselves between a rock and a hard place. What does that look like through your lens at Trinity? And what are the important things that we need to do from a public policy perspective to support our hospitals and their ability to provide access to care. So to your point about, 
you know, I have staff ask me this question all the time because it's it's hard to understand, particularly with how busy our hospitals remain today, why are we having such financial challenges? And so when you really start to kind of peel the onion back and look at double-digit inflation with supplies, even higher inflation with the cost of pharmaceuticals, um, and, you know, needing to pay workforce to keep up with the cost of inflation that we're all experiencing in our homes. We operate not-for-profit hospitals. We, our goal is to turn enough of a margin so that we can reinvest capital into our facilities because we need to replace things like MRIs and CT machines when they become end-of-life. It's just, it's our, it's our cost of doing business. Uh, but, but covering that inflation cost has become so incredibly challenging because of what's happening in the economy around us. And so to your point, you know, when you go to the grocery store and you're you're looking at at buying bacon, you're now paying nine to ten dollars for a pound of bacon. And that's very, very different than it was just a handful of years ago. So that that cost is passed to us as consumers within healthcare that does not occur. And so there's this this gap. Um, and I think you know the difference now in years past the, the gap existed, but at the end of the day, we would find a way to work through it. So what we see health systems doing is kind of looking at, you know, the scope of services that we provide to our communities. And some of us are having to start to make some really hard decisions about, you know, can we continue to provide this service local to this community, or do we need to find a different way to do it across our health system? Do we need to find an outside partner that perhaps steps in because, you know, in, in some instances, it can mean the difference between remaining viable and not, unfortunately. And when we're talking about, you know, healthcare, at the end of the day, it's a, a local activity that's delivered within your local community. And I think we've all come to expect um, and and really benefit from having exceptional healthcare services available within our local communities. And I, I just, I worry, and I know that you worry, and I know that the board is concerned that without some relief, this is going to become a significant problem. And I think we will see care delivery impacted if we don't see change relative to some of the payment mechanisms. We need to continue to advocate together in a unified way for relief in this space because we, you know, we are working with the same set of challenges across every health system, this tremendous inflation in supply and drug costs, and really no increase in and payer mechanisms to offset any of that inflation. And it's, it is hard. It, this is harder than I think I've ever seen it. So Shannon, on that point related to the rise in drug cost, mm -hmm. just one last uh, topic, and that is the 340B drug pricing program, which yeah. continues to be a high priority for the MHA. We've been engaged in the courts. We've been engaged in the state legislature. We've been engaged at the congressional level. Uh, really uh, an all-hands-on-deck effort to yeah. preserve and protect a program that is designed and is functioning to create access to care for everyone in the community, regardless of their socioeconomic status. And, you know, if the 340B program were significantly uh, scaled back or eliminated, as the major drug makers have been trying to do for some time, um, can you talk about what that impact would be, both for Trinity, but you know, the, the healthcare yeah. ecosystem across the state of Michigan. Well, you know, again, Trinity. So part of our core mission is we we care for all. And we, we care for many communities that, 
you know, have a significant number of members that are experiencing poverty. So, you know, access is challenging. If 340B were to go away, I worry the most about patients, and this would be true across the state, uh, especially, you know, patients that are being treated for cancer. Those drugs tend to be among the most expensive and 340B helps, to your point, to preserve access for all to those drugs that can really make a tremendous difference for, you know, for patients that are served, can mean the difference between, and I don't mean to sound overdramatic, but can mean the difference between life and death for somebody that's being treated with a cancer diagnosis. And so, you know, the fact that we, I am so grateful to the MHA for continuing to advocate on this critically important issue. I think education in this space is so important because I think sometimes you know, it, it gets so technical when we start talking about 340B that for lawmakers to understand what's at risk if this program goes away and the access that that is, you know, would be pretty significantly at risk without this program being in place for I don't know how many millions of Michiganders across the state. It's it's highly concerning for all of us. So this is something, you know, I think this is going to continue to be on our high list of priorities for the foreseeable future. Well, Shannon, you and I are going to talk a lot uh, over the course of the next year, no question about it. But unfortunately, our time today uh, is up. Where can folks go to find more about Trinity Health? Do you have a website? We have tremendous information on our website, trinityhealthmichigan.org. And you can find our locations, you can find our providers, you can learn more about our statewide health system. Excellent. Shannon, thank you again for your willingness to join us today on the MyCare Champion cast and certainly for your leadership of the Michigan Health and Hospital Association as our board chair. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in, and I'd encourage you to head to mha.org to learn more about our association, the work of Michigan's hospitals and health systems. Thanks again. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the My Care Champion Guest. To learn more or get involved, visit mha.org.